It is Truth Script Tuesday. That time of the week we come together to review the articles that were on the Truth Script website from the previous week. And we have three good ones. I would say unique ones. You won't find this kind of content on other popular Christian blogs. It's not going to be on discernment ministries. It's not going to be on exegetical blogs. Uh, and it's not even going to be on the more, I would say, left-leaning uh, websites like the Gospel Coalition website that uh, put out some uh, useful content at times, but uh, it's from a certain perspective that I think most rank-and-file Christians don't find very helpful. And so TrueScript is uh, somewhat of an answer to that, and um, I'm just excited to see it filling the gap. And people are uh, more and more being attracted to it, signing up for that weekly email. Uh, if you go to the TrueScript website, sign up for that. It'll give you the weekend roundup, and you can see uh, which articles are ones that interest you, and uh, that's a good way to keep informed. And of course, uh, as time goes on, when we have special events and, and so forth, we will uh, inform you as well through that uh, email link. But that's uh, the way that we can connect with you. Um, we, we do have the men's retreat coming up. I mentioned this uh, when we do Truth Script Tuesdays, just so people are aware. But uh, if you go to the conference tab, you can see the men's retreat uh, right there. And um, this is something to definitely consider coming to if you're a man. And, and something that um, I was just made aware of this week is uh, a friend of mine uh, on social media made a statement about how a lot of these men's conferences cost a lot of money. And, uh, you know, this is one thing that uh, we are conscious of uh, at TrueScript. We, we don't want you to break the bank to come to these events. And we realize it's not for everyone. Not everyone can come. It's, it's, for some of you, it might be an inconvenient location coming to the Adirondacks. Now, now, that said, is it worth the sacrifice? I think yes. I mean, this is the peak fall season. It's a beautiful area. And it's an, there's an extra day now. So it, it is a conference more so. It, you get uh, Thursday night through Sunday afternoon, uh, early afternoon. And so um, your meals are provided during this time. It's great food. And, and the price... Um, I think is very reasonable that we have. I mean, it, we've got it as low as we possibly can. And um, I, I just want to make everyone aware, though, that if if money's a problem, if you look at this and you say, man, I really want to go to the Overcoming Evil Men's Conference, John Harris, Tom Rush, Andrew Rappaport, A.D. Robles, uh, Lance Nidahara, Scott Harris, they're, they're all going to be there. I, this is a unique opportunity. We're going to be out on a lake. I mean, literally, the where we're staying is right on a lake. Uh, we're going to have, uh, I mean, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have fellowship. I, I have access to these people uh, during, there's a lot of downtime and we, there's a lot of speaking, but there's also a lot of downtime because I wanted to make sure that people had fellowship. Um, I want to go to that. I just don't know if I can afford it. If that's the case, understandable. Uh, reach out to me, uh, reach out to me, let me know. And um, I, I can't make guarantees, but I will do my best to make sure that you can come. Uh, that is my commitment uh, to you, and um, I, I really want to see as many people uh, that as can make it uh, to come. And so the dates for that are um, September 21st through 24th, September 21st through 24th, so we're coming up on it, and uh, I would just encourage you, sign up today. Uh, oh, and one final thing, we are going to have a carpool scenario figured out. <laughs> we don't have that right now. Um, last year, I just had people email me. I don't want to do it that way. I want to find a website that does this if possible, but we're going to figure out carpooling situations for people who are coming from a distance. And uh, that way you can uh, network with people in your local area. And maybe, maybe the relationships will be forged there in the car, having some windshield time. A lot of relationships are forged that way. So anyway, um, that's coming up. Uh, wanted to, let's see, uh, I'll just let you know, 
If you want to submit an article on the TrueScript website, go to the bottom of the main page and it says publish. If you click on that, it'll take you to a page that will give you uh, specifications and let you know how to do that. Uh, you can create an account on the TrueScript website and then um, if you uh, enter a blog, it will be reviewed in time. Uh, I think that's it for announcements. Let's talk about the actual articles that we have uh, this week. So we have uh, first an article on pastoral calling. This is actually a follow-up to a previous article from Pastor Dusty Devers. And I think this is a really practical, helpful thing. He said in the first article, which we already went over a few weeks ago, I addressed 10 pastoral calling imbalances. If you remember, there were um, criteria that churches would use in order to call a pastor in order to uh, determine whether a pastor had a calling uh, to come. And and he talks about defective uh, requirements or defect, just just understandings of how that process is accomplished that aren't helpful <laughs> or imbalanced in some way. So now um, he wants to switch gears and uh, in, in this particular article talk about, um, he, he says, uh, Seven, he talked about seven biblical principles for a church to value man and man's calling and eldership. Um, so, so there were 10 pastoral calling imbalances. And uh, now he wants to talk about seven biblical categories for a church. So, so here are some positives. So we, we talked about the negative. Here's some positive things to look for in a man. And this is something that you can ask yourself. If you're someone considering the ministry, ask yourself these questions. Uh, so this is talking about the outward call. Scripture expects that the man whom God calls into the office of overseer and the local church to whom the man is covenanted to fulfill the commands of Scripture, unite to discern and evaluate God's calling to the office of elder. Pastoral calling is one key responsibility in maintaining a well-ordered local church. The topic of training and raising up elders is for another article, but it is necessary in this task uh, for calling elders. Christ commands existing elders to train and raise up faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So let's go to um, the, the seven actual criteria here. Constitution. He must be a he. He must be a he. Uh, and he says this should go without saying, but there's many denominations that have folded on this. Uh, and unfortunately, um, it, it's it, it's becoming more and more pervasive. But all the pronouns in, in the elder qualification passages in Scripture and everywhere else referring to God's commanded elders in the church are masculine. They're all masculine. Uh, male eldership in scripture is not something that men chose. Male eldership is God's chosen good and wise design. So he must be a he. <laughs> that is the first thing. Uh, commitment. That's the second thing. Um, commitment, compulsion. Commitment refers to a man's holy aspiration, zeal, and longing from God to shepherd God's people. So as a chief shepherd, uh, Jesus gives shepherds to the church. In Acts 20, 28, we read that the Holy Spirit makes men overseers to care for the church of God. Uh, in so doing, God causes a man to aspire and desire the noble task, 1 Timothy 3, 1. And he gives giftings based on uh, or, or in accompanying this. So uh, the Lord Jesus, through the apostle Peter, commands that pastors shepherd God's flock both willingly and eagerly. Uh, character. That's the next uh, criteria here. Character refers to the qualities our Lord gives, especially in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, uh, a life devoted to Christ and bringing no shame upon the gospel, his family, or the church. Uh, it, it is interesting to me, these virtuous qualities must 
accompany the man of God who's going to be in the pulpit or, or just functioning in the role of an elder. Uh, because it's not today's more administrative kind of managerial style of leading. Uh, that That's what leadership is today, it seems like, is more management. And, and that's uh, I mean, there, is there a management aspect? Sure, you got to be able to be faithful in the small things, but so much of this is flows from character qualities. Um, he's not addicted to much wine. He's, uh, he's not someone who's um, he he has a good reputation with his neighbors, right? It's things like that uh, are required for someone to be a pastor. He needs to be upstanding. He can't just be a dark horse that comes out of nowhere. You and he went to seminary, so you think he's qualified because of that. Competency. Competency refers to a candidate's necessary abilities for being an elder. Many have recognized that one of the most notable features of the elder qualifications is that elsewhere in the New Testament, they are commanded of all Christians. They are, however, three qualifiers unique to pastors. All are uh, testable and establish the expectation that elders must possess God-given skills to shepherd the flock. So what are those? He uh, must hold firmly to the trustworthy word, not a recent convert, and able to rule his home and church well. Uh, confession is the next one. Confession refers to the candidate's doctrinal commitments. This should go without saying, really, right? A lot of these things are, are very common sense. But uh, the Apostle Paul commands that elders must have a firm commitment to and comprehension of Scripture so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, and there's some good questions I should add that accompany all of these. The candidate should provide biblical answers, including but not limited to the categories of systematic theology and theological distinctives, commitments to the local church's doctrine and practice, and associational relationships with other churches, networks, and the denomination. So um, this is really helpful for a committee that's trying to figure out whether someone would be a good candidate as well, because there's just some practical things in here. Uh, circumstances. Uh, circumstances refer to the life stage in which the man, his family, and the church reside. The candidate, his family, and the church must discern if now is the time for him to set apart, uh, be set apart as an elder. The man may be qualified, but his providential circumstances show it unwise to become a pastor in the immediate future. Um, you know, people ask me uh, quite frequently whether or not I'm going to be a pastor. I just asked this Sunday by a number of people, John, w- w- are you going to do that? When are you going to do that? And um, I explained to people that my this this is the the thing that for me is probably the biggest hang up. I, I just right now with my life circumstances, it's not a good option for me. And I do think that's going to change. Uh, but I have temporary responsibilities that I must attend to that I think would prevent me from being a good pastoral candidate. So I'm not a pastoral candidate. I think it would uh, shortchange a church. It wouldn't be good for a church if I were to try to hold the responsibilities I know I have while also uh, taking on those new ones. Uh, context. Context refers to where the man will serve as an elder. The first six categories have to do with whether God is setting apart a man. The seventh asks where God is sending him for eldership. Together, the man in the local church must wisely consider God's providential circumstances in establishing uh, where God would have the man pastor. It may be at the current local church. However, God may send a plurality of elders to plant a church in another location. All right, so... so should you stay, this is very common at big churches. Uh, I've been in part of uh, some where if they have a seminary attached, especially they, there's like this tendency to uh, stick around and maybe that's a good thing. But there, there's always this question about like, when do you go out, out, out on your own? When do you go plant a church or uh, take on a pastoral role somewhere else? Um, or do you stay there forever? And, and how do you do that, right? The, so, so this is uh, the context question. 
Uh, the candidates in local church must prayerfully ask and consider whether God is sending the man elsewhere or not. Conclusion. In short, all these biblical categories, constitution, commitment, character, competency, confession, circumstances, and context are working together to establish the one primary and preeminent category, cause. If the cause of the man's calling is not the Holy Spirit, the questions honestly answered in these categories should clearly bear witness to that reality. So these things accompany a calling from the Holy Spirit. And I think this is very helpful uh, work on the part of Dusty Devers. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you could honestly put in a book. You could you could really uh, take these principles and extrapolate them out and talk about them more. But uh, it is there for free on the Truth Script website. So uh, check it out. Uh, here's another article uh, from Timothy Carter, A Lesson in Economics from a Parable. A lesson in economics from a parable. Uh, the parable is Luke 19, 11 through 30. So uh, if you're not driving, grab your Bible if you want, uh, and, and you can follow along. Uh, we are given an account of Jesus' teaching, as he often did, through a parable. While not his most familiar, this one has many similarities to other parables. Uh, in this parable, Jesus speaks of a nobleman who was to travel to a faraway land and be instilled as king over his own domain As the nobleman prepares to leave his country, he instructs 10 of his servants to come and give each of them one mina out of the 10 he has. As he disperses the minas, he instructs the servants to take, that's their currency, to take what they had been given and engage in business until he returns. Upon returning home from his long journey, the nobleman now, a king, calls his servants to him to receive an account of how they use the mina they had been given. In this act, the king rewards those who have faithfully engaged in business and punishes those who have not. While the parable of the talents tends to lead us to discuss the various gifts that God has entrusted to us and our call to use them faithfully, this parable, I believe, deals directly with the gospel itself. As we look back over it, we see that the nobleman is a picture of Jesus and what was about to take place. Like the nobleman, Jesus was going to leave his disciples and one day return as the established ruler over all things. In this story, the nobleman leaves each servant the same entrusted treasure and calls each to the same task. Likewise, as Jesus is preparing to leave this earth and ascend to the Father, he also entrusts his disciples with the invaluable treasure of the gospel and commands them to engage in business until he returns. He also uh, knows that one day, uh, we also know that one day, when Christ returns, he will take account of how his disciples and those who are entrusted with his treasure engaged in business. So this is the background. This is the story. uh, That's the parable. And from that, um, he works out some some ways that we should practically uh, act in our own world, in our own lives. What would you say if I told you that at the heart of this parable is also an instructive lesson in economics? And I'm actually not referring to the act of the servants engaging in business with their entrusted minas. While taking their money and engaging in the business as is an economic act, this goes a little deeper. The economics lesson I want to draw out of this parable begins when the nobleman first entrusts his servant with the minas. Specifically, their first economic act was not to engage in business, but to choose to engage in business. You see, before they could do anything, they had to choose between obeying the nobleman or disobeying. This choice was their first economic act. At the core of economics, you will not find a theory of money, but a framework for decision-making. Every decision you make is an economic act in which you examine the options before you and then weigh them against each other and your desired outcome. It's actually very interesting. Uh, this kind of a uh, deeper look into the parable and the principles that Jesus is drawing upon here. In this endeavor, you must look at what you will have to forego in order to make a specific choice and what you will gain by making that specific choice. So count the cost, right? When making these decisions, the choice that is made ultimately aligns with what you value most. 
Uh, he talks about strawberry ice cream and having the choice of buying either strawberry or vanilla, but you're going to give up the chance to buy vanilla in order to have the opportunity to buy, let's say, strawberry because you value that more. Maybe for those who like vanilla or chocolate, it would be different, right? In the parable of the minas, the servant had to make a decision about what they would do with the mina and what uh, and what was entrusted to them. They had to decide whether they valued the desires of the nobleman who owned the mina over any other desires they might have. As you work through the parable, you find that there were some servants who valued the desires of the nobleman over all other options and therefore engaged in business. You will also find that there was one servant who didn't value the desires of the nobleman over everything else. In fact, this servant valued his own self-worth and security more than the nobleman's desire to engage in business. The servant claims that because of this fear, he did not choose to engage. It wasn't that the servant valued what the nobleman thought. It was merely that he feared what the nobleman might do to him. At the end of his decision not to engage in business was the desire for self-preservation, not the satisfying desire of the nobleman. Therefore, as the servant weighed his options and made his choice, he revealed what he valued most, his own self-preservation. So this does get to the heart of economics, right? This gets to the heart of the what we do with our own money and how we spend it and what our priorities are. And, and people often say, uh, you can tell someone's priorities by looking at their bank account statement or their credit card statement, seeing what they're purchasing, seeing where they put their time, where they, um, what they think is important in life. So when you get your priorities straight, when you have the right objectives, right? The economics, I think, falls into place more. Each servant in the parable had a choice, and when they made their choice, they revealed what they valued most. Today, we find ourselves facing many of the same temptations. We have been entrusted with great treasure of the gospel and command, uh, we're commanded to engage in business. It's not as though the servants in the parable only had to make the decision to engage in business once. It was a decision they had to make every day until the nobleman returned. They had to value the desires of the nobleman over any other desire that would creep up day in and out. Likewise, every day we have a choice. Will we value the desires of Christ over all other desires that life throws at us? There are many today who, like the wicked servant, value other things more than the desire of Christ, whether it will be public acceptance, self-preservation, or anything else. This is, this is convicting all of us now, right? And, and it's, I think that's a good thing, a good convicting work. Now, there's grace. You don't need to wallow in guilt if you're not evangelizing as you should, let's say, or making disciples or doing what you know the Lord wants you to do. You don't have to wallow in guilt about that. Um, you go to Jesus, you confess it, and then you ask him for help, right? Uh, so that you can actually take action in economic action here, right? And, and, do, and fulfill the desires of the one who entrusted you with such a precious thing. Today, we are faced with the onslaught of attacks that distract us from engaging in business, temptations of self-preservation, public acceptance, and the like. The choice in our moment is the same as the servant's. Uh, do we value the desires of Christ over everything else? So this is a good article. Uh, this this is really good. It's by Timothy Carter. I don't think he's published with TruthScript before, but he's an associate pastor in Missouri and holds a Master's of Apologetics from Columbia Evangelical Seminary. So a uh, little bio of him down there. Um, but th this is a really good insight, and it's really a, a convicting application, and that's the kind of stuff that uh, we enjoy putting out there. Now, last but not least is an article I wrote. It's my debut article at TruthScript, and um, the title is Power is Not a Dirty Word. Power is not a dirty word. Based on the title, some may think this article is about politics and not Christianity. Actually, it's about both. The social justice movement aggressively started attacking things like marriage and monuments simultaneously in 2015. This was not only a political move, it was very much a religious crusade designed to deconstruct the Christian identity that once existed in the United States. 
The movement gained steam by appealing to language cultural Christians recognized. First, it was tolerance, then acceptance, then love. Anyone who's ever gone to Sunday school thought these were good qualities to have, and in the right context, they are. But the architects of our present world wanted to apply them to degenerate behavior. Tolerate sexual deviance. Now accept their identities as legitimate. Now love their depravity. Now celebrate it for an entire month. Simultaneously, inner virtue and the qualities that accompanied it, such as bravery, fortitude, and sacrifice, gave way to support for outcomes that conform to equality, diversity, and inclusion. While vice was normalized, virtue switched from what characterizes a person to how a person thinks society should be characterized. And this is there's so many examples of this. Uh, that puts us in an odd moment where one does not need to interact with anyone diverse in order to be thought of as a good person, so long as they publicly proclaim their support for diversity. Virtue is an abstraction we adopt, not a set of qualities rooted inside a person that inspires them to act for a greater good. I saw this, I, I mentioned it on, the, on my other podcast, Conversations That Matter. I saw this in um, 20, well, no, was it this year? Maybe it was last year. I'm trying to remember now. I think it was, I think it was late last year. I was at a graduation ceremony. Uh, and the speaker, I saw speakers one after one get up there and proclaim their commitment. They had to kiss the ring and proclaim their commitment to diversity. And I remember thinking like, none of this is actually about real diversity. Like they're not actually um, talking about, like they're not bringing in other people's cultures and trying to grandstand them in front of you. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but I'm saying that there's something else going on. Like you don't have to have diverse friends. You don't have to show that you value diversity by participating in cultural things. All you have to do is, in an abstract way, just signal your, uh, your, your preference for diversity. And then that makes you a good person. You don't actually have to do anything. This is the virtue signal, right? Where does this leave Christians who want to conserve real virtue? The answer is obvious, but seldom recognized by any mainstream Christian organizations. Christians must recognize that these leftist gains were made through political exertion. What was a fringe group of radicals only a few decades ago is now sitting in positions of influence throughout the country. The only recourse on a social level is to seize power from the warped minds who currently wield it. Unfortunately, Christians are neutralized by vilifications of ambition and power. Most major Christian influencers invest their energy not in opposing the enemies of their God, but in pacifying God's people to not oppose them at all. Instead, the only acceptable Christian behavior is to compel their enemies to join them through winsome engagement. So this has really hampered us, right? This attractional model that we have where, and, and, and I don't care if you're on the right or left politically, that in Christianity, this is just across the board. I, I've just seen it everywhere. This uh, attempt to go and um, get people to be attracted to your life and, and, and in so doing, and your winsome behavior, your... Uh, uh, your compelling behavior, they will be attracted to Christianity. Now, in and of itself, I don't think there's anything actually wrong with that. I think darkness hates light, but like the Lord's working, he can use that. And and that should be part of the pie, but it's not the whole pie. And that's part of the problem is that that's become the only acceptable way for Christians to influence society. And um, and of course, I, I, I would say that the social justice movement at least provided an option for Christians to uh, try to, and, and you could say the religious right before the social justice movement provided this option for Christians to somehow uh, do something political, but it, it always had to be done extremely carefully. Um, you you had to, to be make extra, uh, be extra cautious not to cause offense uh, to really the those who are evil in the world who do hold the reins of power. 
And so it it was it was weak. It was, I think it was always weak. Um, it was stronger, I'd say, in the '80s with the religious right. But it was there was even I think some weaknesses there that just um, it, it's yeah there were boycotts. Yeah, there were certain things that that uh, would be done. Those have even faded, to be honest with you, for the most part. But um, there wasn't this like when's the last time you saw a Christian uh, with the acceptance, I should say, and celebration of denominations, churches, Christians, elites, step out into the public arena or the political arena, especially, and start really saying hard truths like uh, like the Democrat Party is evil to the core, like their platform is evil and those who would associate with it are also evil and must be defeated. They're doing the work of Satan, right? Things like that. Now, here's the thing. Um, I'm probably stumbling over myself here because I need to get back to my own article, but but I feel like this is important. Um, you don't want to overvilify. You don't want to start. I mean, th- there could be ignorant people in the Democratic Party who aren't aware that right the rank and file followers. But I'm saying the leaders, right? Uh, I'm saying once you start, w- once you see someone who is condoning, let's say, drag queen story hour or something like that, transgenderism, you should not have a problem if you're a Christian saying they they need to be defeated. They need to have their, uh, whatever influence they have needs to be stripped from them somehow. We need to, it needs to be diminished. Uh, we pray that they would not have that influence. We, we, we want the downfall of their power and influence and the replacement of it with someone righteous, right? That's that kind of thing. You just don't hear it much. It, it's very hard to hear that. Uh, I, I, you have to go to like, people like myself on uh, a podcast. You're not going to hear it in the more respectable ministries or, or even in the political world as much. All right, so back to the article. Uh, scripture outlines multiple positive examples of opposing evil through the use of power. Moses challenged Pharaoh's political authority. God expected Israel to enforce civil penalties to purge evil. The military exploits of David and his mighty men. Elisha and Jehu seized the throne of Israel and use, using their power uh, to punish evildoers. Uh, use their power to punish evildoers. Jesus frequently asserted his authority to oppose evil, even using a whip at one point. Paul referred to magistrates as God's servants to carry out wrath on wrongdoers. And Paul himself planned to overpower arrogant men with truth. There are many more examples, some directly applicable to our current situation and some not. The point is that power in itself is not a bad thing if wielded properly. Most objections to Christians pursuing power are concerned with the improper use of it, Christians should not take revenge, become arrogant, or use power as a means to vanity. Yet in order to honor God and deliver the weak and needy from the hand of the wicked, sometimes power is required. Most Christians understand that pastors should exercise authority, so should parents and husbands, yet in the political realm, many of them are suspicious. It is impolite, too aggressive, or in conflict with the model they have in their minds of Jesus as a servant. But the same boundaries guiding the proper use of power for pastors, parents, and husbands should also guide public servants." It is loving one's neighbor, even if they are not Christian, to defeat the evil that tempts and oppresses them. This is a hard one, by the way. This this gets into the heart of, you know, what about like a a, a drug abuse, uh, you know, quote unquote victim now, or, or something like that. Like, um, what about someone who indulges in some kind of a vice and like it, it's mean to take that away from them or something? It's like, no, it's not. That's that's the loving thing to do. And sometimes it does demand the government force. That coercion is, is there, there is a place for it. Uh, this is true, whether they know they are oppressed or not. And by the way, I should say that I, I'm not saying I'm endorsing every <laughs> every single uh, iteration or application of uh, force. 
uh, for for the greater good. I think there are limits on these things, but I, I don't think that um, a a blank kind of uh, uh, a, a blank kind of dismissal of force as something dirty or evil or like that's a problem. Um, in my experience, Christians generally encourage their young men to sh- who show leadership abilities towards ministry. This is good, and Christians certainly need more solid pastors. However, there are other fields in which virtuous leadership is sorely needed. I find it interesting that Roman Catholics tend to occupy law enforcement and political positions in my area. Protestants tend to shy away from these professions, perhaps for reasons already stated. In 2015, uh, we learned 2020 should teach us more. If we want to take back the dictionary, reinstate uh, virtuous standards, and see positive change in our nation, then more Christians should pursue powerful positions, whether in business, law, medicine, media, academics, or government. They should do so for the right reasons and use their positions to oppose the evil in our midst. They should wrest power from those leading society towards perdition by replacing them. Good men are still out there and we can encourage them to act by changing the way we approach the topic of power. Power is not a dirty word. So there you have it. That is the the podcast for today. Uh, Hopefully uh, those articles were enjoyable for you. Uh, As always, please feel free to, to like us on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook. Share these articles around wherever you are, whether that's uh, even on another social media platform. That's how we get the word out. That's how um, we we help uh, get good information into Christians uh, and people in general uh, into their hands. So uh, God bless. More coming. Don't forget about the men's retreat. Check it out. And uh, any concerns or questions, please uh, contact me or uh, you can contact TruthScript, info at TruthScript.com, info at TruthScript.com. 